Hey there, welcome to The Shaleen Show. Today you're in for a treat. This is an episode that appeared a while back on The Shaleen Show, and I bet you've forgotten about it. Or maybe you're a new listener, but it's worth revisiting. Today, my interview is with author Greg McGowan. He's the author of Essentialism, and today we talk about a really important topic, the pursuit of less. Welcome to The Shalene Show. Shalene is a New York Times bestselling author and the founder of the Smart Success Academy. Your host has a degree in justice, morality, and constitutional democracy. He's not even joking. That's really what my degree reads. And as you know, I graduated from Michigan State University. I was part of the Honors College at James Madison within Michigan State University. And my degree, literally, it reads on my certificate, Justice, Morality, and Constitutional Democracy. And I freaking love saying that because I feel like it makes me sound really smart. And truth be told, that's why I chose that degree. I'm like, um, this one right here would make me sound like super smart. And I was back then. I was like super smart. I do not know what has happened. I feel like now I have street smarts, like I've got street cred. But like back then, I had like book smarts. I was studying philosophers like Frederick Nietzsche and Plato and James Madison and and names I can't even remember. And I don't even remember anything that I studied, but I love my university. I'm a Spartan girl and I bleed green. And I don't know why I'm telling you all that, except that I'm trying to sound smart because The gentleman who you're about to meet, author Greg McEwen, is brilliant. The man is a graduate from Stanford University. He went to law school. And perhaps more importantly, he is the author of the book Essentialism. Now, you've probably been hearing many thought leaders talking about this book for months. I've been talking about it because it so perfectly aligns with the message, the movement that I'm trying to create with smart success. And as you'll hear in in this interview, It's something I still struggle with. So it's really important for me to not only teach this stuff to keep myself accountable, but to surround myself with thought leaders in this area. Greg is brilliant. This is a very thought-provoking interview, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you today. I am such a big fan of your book. I'm a big fan of just the whole idea. I'm so looking forward to it. Uh, I love the work that you're doing and looking forward to the chat. Thank you very much. Now, where are you from? I was born in London, England, grew up in Leeds, in the north of England, and have spent the last 15 years in the US. I'm currently based in California. I see. My listeners are going to think I'm smarter just because you're my first guest with an accent. (laughs) This is exciting. The English accent is my my saving grace. (laughs) So without it, I'm in trouble. I'm going to get one. (laughs) Yes. So let's talk about this concept. First of all, I mean, your book is being passed around by so many people who I think have come to this point in their lives where they're like, okay, enough is enough. And your book has become, you know, kind of the the battle cry, like holding up this book of essentialism and realizing we're not supposed to be doing everything. Yeah, I mean, we've really just been sold a bill of goods here. For years and years, we have been taught that if we can fit it all in, then we can have it all. But the problem is it's not true. It has the inconvenience that it's a myth. And what it really produces is stressed out, frustrated people, otherwise hardworking people who don't break through to the next level. So I don't know if it's I've just surrounded myself with people who've come to this realization and are living smart success or essentialism. Do you believe we are headed in that direction or is it getting worse? Well, the answer to that is yes. 
So I think that we're in a busyness bubble, mm. which means that there's this irrational exuberance around busyness, the mm. glorification of busyness, the how are you doing? I'm so busy. Someone said that to me recently, of course, but they said that they added to it. They said, I'm so busy. They said, I have slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks. But the thing that was curious about that, other than that being slightly mad, is that she was so happy about it. Mm. As if she was, what she was telling me was genuinely good news, that it said something about her. She was important. Yes. Her life was full of something yes. that meant something. And it's that kind of behavior that tips us off that something's going on. And what is going on is this overvaluing of this asset, this idea that, uh, that being busy is itself importance and meaning. And so I see the phenomenon is going to get worse before it gets better. That's one phenomenon. But at the same time, I see an increasing number of people, almost like a ground swell movement of people who say, you know what, this just doesn't work. And it's just costing me my life, you right. know, quite literally. And relationships. Uh, and relationships. And the quality of my life is going down. The stress is going up, but the quality of life is going down. And so there is a growing group of people who are getting out of this bubble before it bursts. And I feel that, I see it, and, and I'm hopeful about that part of it. Greg, the thing that has me most curious is it's kind of easy for entrepreneurs or those who work for themselves or even stay-at-home moms and dads to adopt this way of thinking because their only resistance really is themselves. So it's like easy to go, yeah, I'm totally stressed out. This doesn't feel good. I've got to stop this crazy pursuit and I'm going to change my ways. But what I'm fascinated with is that large corporations are starting to realize that this benefits them to adopt your principles and that some of the biggest corporations have brought you in to speak to their employees. Please tell me what type of enlightened organizations have come to their senses and realized that this is better for everybody and how do you get them to that point? Okay, so I need to share a story though to put this into context. Please. So one of the people that I, I interviewed for the book, so completely true story, was a leader in a company. He was doing award-winning work and then the whole company was purchased by a larger, more bureaucratic company. And as he goes into that new company, he wants to be a team leader, a team player, a good citizen of the new company. And so that means that if people ask him to be at a meeting, he says yes. If they send him an email, he wants to be quick to respond. If there's a conference call, he wants to be on it. And he notices exactly what we just said, that the stress is going up as the quality of his work is going down. And that created enough strain for him. He thought about leaving the company. But then a mentor inside the company listening to him said, no, you know what? What you need to do is take a pause, take like a what I would call now a personal quarterly offsite mm -hmm. and really think about how do I best contribute to this company? He said, what you really need to do is start thinking like you're going to retire in role so that you're looking at your work through the lens of what's the very best use of me, not just does somebody somewhere want this. And when he did that, he was nervous at first, you know, that this was just a self-indulgent move. But what he found was that by the end of, you know, a few months of experimenting with this, that in his personal life, he said, I got my life back. Phone went off at a certain time every night. He went to the gym every night. And suddenly he just had more than that, just space to think. And to create. And what he found was that then at work, he was able to focus on the things that would really move the needle instead of just being in this reactive state. 
And so by the end of the year at work, his performance evaluations had gone up and he ended the year with one of the largest bonuses of his whole career. Wow. So this is the basic value proposition of essentialism, that if we focus on the right few things, then we can actually have a scenario where our personal life gets better and more in balance and our contribution to our place of work also increases. This is the argument I think these companies are facing, is that what they want is people that do great work, That's right. not people that do a little bit of everything and don't move the needle. And you certainly have to factor in happiness when we're talking about productivity. I've certainly worked in corporations before where that same thing where I feel like if I'm the go-to girl, if every time somebody needs a volunteer, I put my hand up, I'm the first to sit down at the meeting, I'm the quickest to reply to the email or to offer my services or to head up that committee. Well, then I'll be the go-to girl. This will push my career forward. But what it does is it drives down your happiness. And I think the fear is that we won't get an exceptional performance review. And what you're telling us, I think, is that actually the opposite is true. Well, I'm saying that the strategy you just described works, but only for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course, when somebody's very first into a company, uh, they're, they're very first uh, you know, at the beginning of their career, of course, they don't want to come in and try to be super selective. You come in and you're going to try and get uh, work and, and, <laughs> and, and yeah. respond to people's uh, requests and so on. But that, what, what got us to here won't get us to there. What we have to do if we want to continue up the influence ladder is to be able to create more space to think about what is most valuable. So that then when a boss or an internal customer comes to us and requests something, we're ready to have a negotiation where we simply say, look, I'm happy to do what you just said, but what should I give up in order to do it? Ah, oh, yes. Or maybe we're negotiating back and we're simply saying, well, what you've said is one really good idea, but I'm not sure I can do a really great job with it. Would you prefer I did five things you know, pretty well or these three things superbly well? And again, that's a negotiation. As soon as you give up the right to negotiate non-essentials, you give up a lot of power. But it does take courage. I, you know, even in just the last couple of years in consulting with companies where I'm sitting in a meeting to recap the last meeting that we had and then spending the last 30 minutes of that meeting talking about what we'll discuss in our next meeting and realizing these people do this all day long. When do they actually get any of the work done that they're talking about in these meetings, these endless meetings? And, and then having those private conversations. I'm not an employee of one of these corporations, but having those private conversations and saying, is this really like what your day is like? And how do you get work done in those situations? Well, first of all, let's just talk about courage for a second. Yes, so please. I never intended to write about courage. But there's no question at all that under the rock of essentialism, underneath that hiding is courage, raw and powerful. That is what is at the core of this subject. It is this trade-off between doing only what people ask of you. So out of social pressure, reacting to requests versus internal clarity of knowing this is the thing that is actually essential. And so actually I write about in the book, Rosa Parks. Now we know the, we know the main story about Rosa Parks, right? Mm -hmm. She says no on the, on the bus. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But, but what's curious about that is that she's the same person who, when she first joined the NAACP was so unaware that she could say no, that when they asked for her to be, um, you know, the secretary, she said yes, because she didn't know she could say no. 
So here's the same person who is just in that logic and that way of being that, you know, arguably utters the most famous no in modern history. Uh, now, now we can go a step further. Why is it that the same person is able to act so differently in those two situations? And by her own account of that day on the bus, the bus driver comes up to her, you have to move. She said in that moment, she felt a sense of clarity consume her like a warm blanket mm. consuming her. And she just knew in that moment that she would never ride the bus again in that way. She didn't know that it would make an impact on anyone else. She didn't know what the bus driver would do. In fact, when he said, well, I'll have to call the police, her words are really instructive. She said, you may do that. She didn't know what he would do. She just knew what she would do. That obviously coalesced into the civil rights movement and affected the whole world. But the idea of that, to use the symbol of it, to say, look, are there ways in which I am violating something I know is essential inside for something that's less essential outside? And to at least just increase our consciousness of it, to become aware that we're making this trade-off instead of just doing it without thought. I think this sense of courage is critical to be able to even begin these kinds of conversations that we're talking about. Isn't it interesting? I mean, it really does boil down to courage. And it's not the kind of courage you have to muster up to, you know, take on a lion or to jump off a cliff. It's an internal courage. Like you said, it's the courage to do what you know is right, even though you don't know for sure the outcome. She didn't know what the bus driver would say, but she did know what she would do. And that's the courage that I think people need to muster. Okay, worst case scenario. Just imagine the worst case scenario. If you say no and the worst case scenario happens, what will you then do? And if you know the answer to that, you find courage, I believe. I think that's right. And I think that you can put like an order to this. It's a little conceptual, but I think this begins with creating space okay. to be able to get internal clarity, which then is the driver of this courage that then allows you to negotiate. And I think that that, if you think about that order, what it means then is that the real thing people have to learn how to do is not how to say no, or even how to negotiate. Those are important, but it's mm. not the beginning. The place essentialism begins is, do you create enough space to really listen to your own conscience, to think about the bigger picture? And that's the beginning of the whole cycle. And so in the final analysis, it's like the person we talked about before, creating a personal quarterly offsite, you know, every 90 days reviewing the, your life. Am I on track? Do I know what I want to do long term? Am I asking the big questions so that in the moment when you suddenly are facing negotiations, you have all of these clear yeses burning inside of you and you're empowered by that internal clarity. Hey, guys, sorry to interrupt, but you need to know this. The book Essentialism is an excellent read. But why read it when you could have Greg read it to you? Yeah, all you have to do is go to audible.com forward slash Shalene right now to sign up for your 30-day free trial of Audible. Audible is the smart person's go-to app, for real. Every night before I go to bed, I pick the book that I'm going to listen to in the morning. I get through at least one book a week. And the book Essentialism, the author that I'm speaking with here today, that is an excellent book. It's yours for free when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audible.com. They have tons of books, everything you can imagine from kids' books, fiction, nonfiction, 
All of your favorite titles are there. Now, it's really easy for you to get your free trial. All you have to do is go to audible.com forward slash Shaleen, or you can text the word Shaleen to 500, 500. Listen, smart people listen to books, and I know you're smart. All right, back to the interview. Can you explain to me what you mean by creating space? What does that mean? Well, first of all, let's just accept that our era, this last 10 years, Mm -hmm. is the first era ever when people had no natural space in their life. So I was at Twitter a little ironically that one of the leaders there said to me, asked me the question, do you remember what it was like to be bored? You know, in other words, you know, you're at an airport, the plane is late, you've, suddenly you've got to be bored, you have to be bored, there's nothing else going on, you don't have a phone to turn to, so you have to face boredom and you have to face thinking and wondering what's going on in your life, even if that's not very comfortable, you have to think about these things. And suddenly we have this generation that doesn't ever experience that. We're just always plugged in, always connected, and often plugged in and connected to email, which means we're plugged in and connected to other people's agenda. So what I mean by creating space is certainly digital space, you know, creating a day a week that you say, this is my digital detox. I'm not going to be plugged in. It might include having an area in your home that you say, this is digital space here. I won't have bedroom or area that just we don't have any phones, any computers in it either. So that there's just a place that that doesn't enter. It includes having one day every quarter to have this personal quarterly offsite I keep mentioning and so on. Can you say that again? Quarterly. It's a personal quarterly offsite. Personal quarterly offsite. Yeah, this is big. To me, this, if there's one thing someone should do okay. to escape the hands of non-essentialism, this grasping, monstrous, really awful thing which is just, you know, consumes us body and soul. If you want to escape it, the one thing I would suggest is every 90 days, you take a full day. If the company doesn't support this or you don't have control over that at work, then take a Saturday. Okay. But you take a full day, go out into nature somewhere, bring with you any journal if you keep a journal. If not, print up, you know, calendar through through that period. First of all, you do three things. You're saying, where have I been for the last 90 days? Second question, where do I want to be over the next 90 days? Thirdly, what's important now? And so in the first question, you're saying you're reviewing anything you can, any notes, you're making a list of the 50 things that you've really spent your energy on, just all the different projects, all of the different activities, good news, bad news, all of it. And you're looking for what's the news of my life? Like, what can I learn from life as it is? That's the first piece of work. Mm -hmm. Second piece of work is, okay, let me look at the next 90 days. What are the things I'm already committed to? If I could only do one thing, what would it be? So maybe you end up with a list of three things in priority order. These are the things I really want to get done over the next 90 days. And then because you've now got the past and future, you then look to the present and say, okay, what do I have to be doing on a routine basis? What would my dream routine look like every week to be able to reasonably expect to achieve those three objectives by the end of the 90 days? And so I suggest people write that, you know, they draw out 168 hours, that's your week. And you, in pencil, draw out, where do I want to time block? You know, eight hours a night of sleep. Okay, that's a big chunk of your life. That's a third of your life right there, a third of those 168 hours. And then where are you going to chunk these other periods of time to make sure that you are spending time on those few three things you've just identified? So that is what you do in that one day 
offsite every three months. I love that. I love that. Okay, I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Let's say I do take this, you know, personal quarterly day where I'm sitting down and reflecting on where I've been, what I've got upcoming, and what it is I want. And how is it that I'm able to avoid the lure, the attraction of the trappings of success? In other words, I've often did this before I got to the point where I am today, where I thought, okay, I know why I'm unhappy. I don't have enough. I haven't done what this person has done. I haven't created enough. I haven't reached my fullest potential. So I'm going to have to do all of these things. And if I took a day to plan, it would always be to create more stress. So how do we avoid getting sucked in to the trappings of more? Oh, what a great question. Um, so the first thing we have to do is become aware of the risks of success. So mm. the question I've really been grappling with for the last 15 years that led me to, to write Essentialism is, why is it that otherwise successful people and organizations don't break through to the next level? So first of all, that ought not to be the case. That it ought to be the case that successful people continue to be successful. For example, if you and I have a race, Mm-hmm. and you win, which you would. Um, <laughs> so we, we go on this race and you win. And now you're 10 yards ahead of me. And then we stop the race. But we start a second race with you starting 10 yards ahead of me. Okay. Okay. You're going to win again. And it ought to be true forever because every time you start, you're further ahead than you were before. And yet what we see is this is not what happens, that otherwise successful people and companies don't continue in their journey of success. Actually, the story, especially, I mean, think about, you can search people or organizations, but think about organizations. The story of organizations is that they grow, they become successful, and then they fail and die. Mm. And this is the journey of organizations. And so to me, it's mind-boggling. It's a non-trivial question as to why this is the case. But here's what I found. Okay. I found that the answer to the question is success itself. Success is the reason Successful people and companies don't break through to the next level. Here's why. What I noticed, particularly working with Silicon Valley teams, is that when they were focused, when they'd created enough space to figure out the right few things at the right time, it led to tremendous success. But that as soon as they got success, it bred all sorts of options and opportunities that themselves, just the fact that they exist and people suddenly get pulled into them, undermines their ability to stay focused and figure out what the next right thing is to do. And so I came to learn that success can become a catalyst for failure Mm -hmm. because it leads to what Jim Collins has called, and I want you to think about these words, right? The undisciplined pursuit of more. The undisciplined (laughs) pursuit of more. I don't have to think about them. I have lived those words. What, what do they mean to you? What, when you hear those words and you say you've lived them, what does that mean? To me, that means I couldn't get off of this hamster wheel that I didn't even know where it was I, was I wanted to be. I knew all these things that I wanted to achieve. I never gave any thought to what I wanted to feel and how I would define success. I knew all these things meant success, like as defined by society. I never took time to realize or to even define, would that be my success? Is that what would make me feel happy or that I was living a life with purpose? And Mm -hmm. I kept accomplishing every single goal and going, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I have to accomplish more and, Mm -hmm. and I'm not happy. You became an achievement junkie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I I think this sort of more cycle, this achievement cycle, where 
you know, actually I saw it. I went to a business school. I saw this. It was really hard to get into the business school I went into, which I only say because once I got there, I was assuming I would just meet these amazing people, which I did. <laughs> but I assumed that those amazing people would just know what they wanted to do and be able to pursue the things they wanted to pursue. Because I assumed that that's what had led them to be there. And I assumed that because they could get into a hard school, that meant that they should be able to pursue and get into the next thing, even if it's harder and unusual path. And that is not what I noticed. I noticed too often, of course, not always. People who just chased one title after another, right? So they were, yes. they've worked for Goldman Sachs and then they worked for McKinsey and now they're at this school and now they're going to go and work at the next place. And it was just a continuing gathering of these trophies yes. rather than what is it really about for me? And so, so all these questions I'm implying, uh, you know, in this personal quarterly offsite weren't getting asked. What I was missing before when I described that idea of a personal quarterly offsite was the bigger questions. So, let me put it this way. So there's somebody who, um, a friend of mine, Enrique uh, Sala, and Enrique always wanted to be an explorer in the ocean and to protect the oceans. And this was his dream. And he got distracted along the way by something that doesn't sound like a distraction. He got distracted to become a professor at uh, the Institute, uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography here in California. So he got to be a professor studying the oceans, talking about it with his students. That sounds like he's right on the path, but he wasn't. He was on a parallel path. It was close, but not the thing. And so when he really asked the bigger questions, what am I, what is my purpose? What am I really wanting to do in my life? Where am I going? He discovered, no, I want to be at National Geographic and I want to be in the oceans as an explorer. So he gets, he renegotiates everything in his life. He gets over to National Geographic and it happens again to him. He gets pulled into this research project for two years. It's a great project, it's a, but it's not the thing. And because he's taking this time to ask the big questions, he's able to discern the difference between good and essential. What he ends up doing is renegotiating there at National Geographic. And now he is an explorer in chief, uh, explorer rather in residence. And he travels the world going to these pristine oceans and he holds world leaders to account and they create basically national parks in the ocean. Hmm. Uh, and these incredible success that he's had doing the thing he really was built to do. Wow. Now, I write about his story and that experience in, in Essentialism, but okay. I just got an email from him just a few weeks ago. And he said, I just wanted to update you on my essentialist journey. And I wish, I wish this could have been in the book, but it was, um, this has just barely happened. He said, a few months ago, I was diagnosed with cancer of the kidney. And suddenly, all these questions that we've talked about with what is essential took on a totally different meaning. And he said, I've asked these questions. And just as an aside, these are exactly the questions that I've been advocating people ask mm -hmm. on these in this personal course, the offsite. So I couldn't believe I'd never mentioned that to him, though. And so I couldn't believe that these were the questions he asked. He said, I've just asked myself, if I only had a week left to live, what would I do? If I only had a month left to live, what would I do? Mm -hmm. If I had a year, five years, and then the rest of my life. So those are the five questions. And he wrote to me what the answers were to those questions. So, you know, I was on sacred Powerful. ground listening to that. Yeah. But these are the questions, right? To ask these provocative questions so that we can try to assess, am I going in the right direction or am I just pursuing more because it's more? Yes. And so these are the questions that in this offsite are critical people get to. It's not just 90 days past and future. It's also much bigger questions. Those questions I put to you, those five questions, I think in an hour, 
you, you can have some insight. And uh, sometimes I think about that being the most important hour of our lives. Yes. Just, just taking the time to, to do exactly what you said is to create the space, create the time non-negotiable, uninterrupted, with pure focus, without distraction, without a cell phone sitting nearby where you are anticipating a text message. And to truly do that is the most rewarding, most profoundly rewarding thing that someone can do. My question to you as we're approaching the end of our time together is this. I went to your website, I took the quiz, and I'm happy to report that I passed with flying colors. But I also know that it's difficult for me to keep myself accountable. I think it's one of the reasons why I teach this. It, part of teaching it is to also hold myself accountable. Or what do you recommend people do once they've learned to adopt this very profound way of thinking, of analyzing things and realizing what is essential and what is not? How do we keep ourselves accountable to this way of thinking and not slip back into not just old habits, but the predominant message in our culture, which is more? Yeah, so you actually just named it, right? Mm. So this idea of teaching is very key Mm. logic, not logic, very key practice for doing just this. So I say to people, one of the first things you should do is if you're starting to read the book, if you're listening to this podcast right now, is take on the mindset of a teacher and say, okay, who is one person I can share this with right now? Who can I text right now and say, okay, just listening to this podcast, I think this is something I need to work on, it's something that we should talk about, and you just start the conversation. And you put yourself in the mode of sharing these ideas so that then there's a conversation that takes place. Sometimes, very often, people feel like they have to shift from hearing something, learning something straight to action. And I can see logic for that, but I I think it's a really risky thing to do with essentialism. I think the first thing is listen to it, share it, have a conversation, have a conversation with your significant other, have a conversation with the people on your team at work, you know, initiate the way of being able to discuss it so that you keep yourself accountable, as you mentioned, but also that you then introduce it into those relationships so that you're not on your own. Let's spread the word and start today. So if you've listened to this podcast, go to the last post I've done on Facebook and say, I am talking about essentialism today. Use the hashtag essentialism so we can find you. And how can people learn more about what it is you offer and perhaps even some upcoming speaking engagements? Yeah. So if they just go to gregmcewan.com, I think that's probably the easiest way to get there. Awesome. And we will put a link to Greg's website in the show notes. I would love to suggest that people go and take the quiz because you've got this awesome quiz and you can find it by going to his website and just clicking on quiz and, and you'll know if you're actually on the right track or there's some work to be done. And the book is amazing. You need to pick up a copy of this book. I just, all the people I respect have been talking about this book. And when I picked it up, I just couldn't put it down. You can ask my staff and my husband. I was walking around with it until that white cover is now soiled, soiled by my dirty hands and makeup and everywhere else I've (laughs) placed the book. Uh, That's fantastic. It is a fantastic book. I hope more people begin to adopt this way of thinking. It's smart success. It's essentialism. I think it's really important as a nation that we return to this because it's what's important, you know? So Greg, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure to be able to chat with you. Uh, I've just been delighted to be with you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll share it with your friends. It's really how I'm getting the word out about this podcast. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm devoting a lot of time to podcasting. I am really counting on you, my lifers, to help me get the word out. 
please take a moment to write me a review on iTunes. And more importantly, send the link to this show via text to somebody who you know would love this. They need to hear this episode. They need to subscribe to the show because you're the best person to recommend people to our group, our tribe, our community, because we already know who fits in. You know what I'm saying? All right, cool. All right, I got to go. I love you. Bye. Bye.